as I've had reason to, to comment a number of times before, and, and many of you already know this about me, one of my most enjoyable side activities is coaching. I love coaching a youth basketball team. And one of the challenges of that task is balancing decisions that affect individuals with decisions that affect the team as a whole. The team is a living organism and a single unit, but it's comprised of individuals who have their own wills and thoughts and ideas and talents, abilities, feelings, minds, and bodies. But it's the team as a whole that wins or the team as a whole that loses. If the team wins, there's no individual player that loses. And likewise, if the team loses, there's no individual player who wins. So the individuals are important, but so is the team. And I bring this up today because it parallels the reality of the community of God. God interacts with his people as individuals caring for them, but he also addresses them corporately as his family. God has revealed himself as father. And as such, as a father, he fathers his sons and his daughters individually, but then he also fathers his family corporately, the family of God. In the Old Testament, this community, the first time we see God acting toward his people as a community is with the children of Israel, the Hebrew people. In the New Testament, God's people then are grown into the church. And the point is that since the beginning of time, God's plans as regard those who would become his children, they were always corporate in nature, even though that body, that community, was made up of individuals. And throughout the entire history of the church, God's people have struggled to balance these two realities, the corporate and the individual. A thousand years ago or so, the church had swung to one extreme. And the emphasis was almost entirely on the corporate plans for God's people, an intense pressure was placed on individuals to be in the church, which in and of itself perhaps is okay, but to the exclusion of inviting them to seek and to know God personally for themselves. Now, I would suggest that today the Western church has swung far to the opposite extreme. Today we tend to ignore the corporate nature of God's plan for his people and focus almost exclusively on the individual. And that's one reason I believe that there's a growing indifference toward the church, even among those who would call themselves believers. The church is optional at best and detrimental perhaps at worst. Last week we began to look at Psalm 103. In this psalm, David begins by talking to himself, exhorting himself. And he says, praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. It's like he's giving himself a gospel pep talk. Don't forget to praise God. But then he continues the psalm 
as we saw last week, by listing all these reasons why it makes sense for him to praise God. Now, the verses we looked at last week, verses 1 through 5, focus on blessings that God gave individually to his children, specifically to David. David's talking to his own soul, and he says to his soul, don't forget all of God's benefits. He forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. He satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Then when he arrives in verse 6, he transitions and he brings balance to his praise by focusing on the blessings that God gives corporately to his people. So I'm going to read the next five verses of Psalm 103, which begin the to reveal the corporate blessings that God has given to his children. So I'll begin with verse 6 and read through verse 10. Psalm 103, verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. I mentioned that verse 6 is the transitional verse. And you might look at that and say, wait, I don't, hear or see a transition here. All David is saying is that God is working righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. How is that a transition from individual to corporate? It's, we don't see it because we're not attuned to the historical significance of what David is affirming. So the question that I ask you is this, what evidence does David have that God works righteousness and justice for the oppressed. Consider that for a moment. What is David's frame of reference? Why does he know this? How is he convinced of it? He knows it because it's rooted in the history of his people, the people over whom he is king, the Hebrew people, the children of Israel, the Israelites. And he draws from the Exodus. And if you have attended Calvary, even for more than just a few months, you'll remember that we spent almost two years in Exodus. The Israelites spent 40 years, we spent two. Okay, that's not a bad uh, average. The point is, David knows from the history of his people, because God played this out live in the history of Israel. He worked righteousness and justice for them. They were slaves under the Egyptians, and he set them free. He brought them out. So this is how we know David is transitioning. He was talking to his own soul, and now he's saying, but you know what? I know that God works righteousness and justice corporately for his people. Why? Because our history affirms it. And then 
as he makes this transition, he goes back to his list. And David is going to continue to list all the reasons why it makes sense for God's children to praise him. Why God is worth praising. The next benefit that David mentions, he he does so in a, a somewhat odd way. He says, you made known your ways to Moses, your deeds to the people of Israel. This statement, this double statement, is what we call a parallelism. So you remember a a few weeks ago, a couple months ago, I brought to you the idea of a chiastic structure in Hebrew poetry, whereby the author would um, set up parallel points, but they're separated by a lot of text, and then they continue to work down as parallel points until we get right to the center point, which is the most important the point to where the author wants to draw our attention. And it worked out well. I hadn't planned it this way, but then a couple weeks later, Ken Davis was preaching, and he brought out that same chiastic structure idea from the account of Noah and the flood and God's salvation through the ark. But today I want to just mention this idea of parallelism, which is another uh, common device of Hebrew poetry, where the poet will make a statement and then immediately repeat the statement, but not in exactly the same words. He's communicating the same idea, but there's a little twist. It's not only a twist, it actually drives the meaning forward just a little bit more. So we have these two statements reflecting each other. So in this verse, verse 7, it seems that David says the same thing in different ways twice. The Lord made known his ways to Moses. And I just want to remind us from Exodus, that came as a direct answer to Moses' prayer in Exodus 33, 13, where where Moses says, show me your ways. Teach me your ways. God answered that prayer. God showed him his ways. And then the second statement carries the, the same idea of revelation, but makes it corporate. His deeds to the people of Israel. Moses individual, the people corporate. But what's the point? The point is that God has revealed himself. We often, and I'll include myself in this, we take that for granted. Especially those who have a long history in the church. We've heard it perhaps all our lives. We're very conversant with the Bible, with Scripture. We know the major, we call them the major Bible stories, right? Creation, Abraham. We, we, we know the story of Jonah and the big fish, David and Goliath, you know, the miraculous stories. And because of that, we've kind of become a little bit inured to the fact the miraculous fact that God has revealed who he is to people. He's objectively revealed himself so that humanity does not have to fumble around in the dark either to understand God or to make up our own gods. God revealed himself to the people of Israel in his words, in his actions, and through the community of his people. And today, he has revealed himself in his word, In Christ, the Word made flesh. 
through his actions and his creativity and his creation and through his community, his church. The fact that God has revealed himself is one of the greatest reasons why we should praise him. The next blessing that David comments upon is that the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. Verse 8 that I just quoted is, is taken word for word from Exodus 34, 6. Once again, when God speaks, God's word speaks to the nation of Israel and God says this about himself, I am compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. And in the historical context, this is very important because God is showing himself in contrast to the other pagan deities of the time. Now, I want to, I want to ask another rhetorical question of you to get us thinking in this certain line. Most people who do not claim to be believers in Christ, they at least have some concept of a God. So I'm not saying they believe in this concept. I'm not saying that they would acknowledge that such a God exists, but they have a general consensual idea that if this being were to exist, this being would be good and benevolent and loving. Okay, so yes, there are outliers, but generally speaking, when people speak of God, they're talking about a being who is benevolent and good and loving. And that then becomes one of the greatest arguments against Christianity, right? Because what, what is the argument? Well, how can you claim to have th that God is all-powerful and all-good and all-loving and all-knowing and yet allows so much pain and suffering and destruction in the world? And, and this is a difficult question. I'm not discounting that question. It needs to be addressed. But I'm not going to do that this morning. What I, what I want to draw out from that, though, is why do we even have this idea that a deity would be good? Where does that come from? Why does that concept even exist? Because if we're speaking historically from the, the period of the Exodus... The deities of the nations surrounding Israel at the time were not good. That's not how the people who worshipped them perceived them. They perceived the deities as capricious, as self-absorbed, as distant in their interactions with humanity. And their interactions with humanity were primarily to satisfy the God's own desires and needs. And that's why these people lived under a pall of fear, constantly sacrificing, constantly worried, constantly burdened that they had to please this God in order for there to be rain. They had to please this God in order for things to go well, but having no assurance that they would ever be able to do so. So here's the question. Why would people even today think that God is good? or that the concept of a God is good. 
it's because God has revealed himself in this way. Way back then, maybe this sounds like circular reasoning, but it's not. Up until God's self-revelation, the concept of a deity was not a loving or benevolent deity. God revealed himself as gracious and compassionate. Think about what it means that you would serve a compassionate God. A God who has mercy on you. And God, our God, contrasts himself to the Baals, the Molechs, the Asherahs, the idols, by showing that he is compassionate, that he is full of grace, that he is patient, full of care for his people. The the text says he's abounding in love. So that means more than a lot. More than a lot. God has more than a lot of love. There's no real way to quantify it. He is abounding in love. And then David says, this is his third blessing, that God will not always accuse. I'm not super pleased with the way the NIV has translated this phrase. It it's workable, it fits, but it's, there are two words better translated in a different way. First of all, the word always. Instead of always, a better word there would be constantly. He does not constantly accuse. Now, the second word is the word accuse. There's another English word that is not very well known and not broadly used, but it fits better in the context than many of the other biblical interpretations, biblical translations use it. It's the word chide. So now you're looking at me like, so what does that mean? You know, that doesn't help us. How about the word scold? Maybe that helps you. Scold, to to constantly scold. If we need to go a step further, we could maybe go into Portuguese and say dar uma bronca. So God is not consistently chiding his children. God is not consistently scolding his children. God is not consistently dando uma bronca on his children. And what David is communicating is that God is not always throwing the sins of his people in their faces. He doesn't rub our faces in our own sin. To go back to the basketball team that I coach, uh, something that I have to reinforce to them constantly is, is, is the concept that, that when they do something wrong, I, I ask them this question. I say, okay, guys, come here, come here. When you do something wrong, when you make a mistake on the court, do you need everybody on your team to tell you that you made a mistake? Do you need everybody to draw attention to the fact that you made a mistake? And they all just kind of stand there and they're like, no. And then I said, then why do you do it? Why do you do that to your teammates? They know they've made a mistake. What they need at that point is not for you to say, you idiot. You just made a mistake. I know I made a mistake. When God's people sin, and they will, that's you and me, God does not constantly accuse or constantly scold. He convicts of sin. And conviction, what is that? It is drawing attention to the sin for the purpose of repentance. Look, you messed up here. When you did this, 
that was sin. When you said this, that was sin. And it's an invitation to confess and to repent and to receive forgiveness. And once that repentance and confession has taken place, never again will God take that sin and rub it in our faces. David's going to talk about this some more later on in the psalm, but we're not going to get there today. And brothers and sisters, how, how human is this tendency to constantly scold? And the second phrase of this parallel construction is that God does not harbor his anger forever. So he does not always accuse and he does not harbor his anger forever. God doesn't hold grudges against his people. He does not remain angry over sin that is confessed and of which we have repented. A picture of forgiveness of the Lord. Now this is where we really get down to it when, when we're called to be imitators of God. Do we hold grudges? I think this happens all the time in a thing called marriage. Why are you laughing, Kevin? <laughs> we, we, husbands and wives, are, we, we can be really good at remembering the sin of our spouse. And we can be really good at bringing it up over and over and over again from years ago, from years ago. Sin that in in theory has been dealt with, has been forgiven, has been confessed. And and this is a challenge to us, husbands, wives, and it's not limited to marriage, okay? Humans in general are really good at holding grudges. It's a gift we have, okay? It's part of our human nature. Let us be imitators of God in releasing, even as God has released his forgiveness upon us, then that is is the freedom that we need to release our forgiveness on other people. And once that sin is forgiven, to never bring it back, to never rub our our friends, our spouses, our parents, our family members' faces in that sin. God does not harbor his anger forever. And the last parallelism that we're going to look at today is that he does not treat us as our sins deserve on one hand, And on the other hand, he does not repay us according to our iniquities. And this couplet communicates the mercy of God on one hand and his grace on the other. Mercy and grace, words we hear a lot. Words that we sometimes use interchangeably, but we shouldn't. Although they're related, they are different. What is mercy? Mercy is when we don't get what we deserve. So as sinners, we deserve destruction and death and hell. And it's very important that we understand that it is not God who sends people to hell. It is people who by their rebellion and by their sin choose it. Because that's what we deserve. So the natural course of events is destruction and hell for those who sin and have broken the way of God. 
but God does not treat us as our sins deserve. That's mercy. That's mercy. The second half of the verse says that God does not repay us according to our iniquities. It doesn't say that God doesn't repay. It's that he doesn't repay according to our iniquities. So we should be paid with death, but instead he repays us with blessing. So not only does he not give us the punishment that we do deserve, he then adds to that blessing that we don't deserve. So this is the definition of grace, a simple one. Getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is we don't get what we do deserve. Grace is we get what we don't deserve. Good, good things, good things. Okay, grace. I've used this story, I don't know how many times, um, to communicate various different aspects of God's interaction with people, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beg your forgiveness as I do it one more time. Um, some of you have heard it in more detail. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but when I was in high school, there was one night, long story, I was not supposed to drive my dad's car. I did drive my dad's car, and I drove it right into the gate and right into the wall uh, in front of our house. Uh, it was not a good scene. It was not a happy moment in my life. And uh, I think I was 17, slammed that car into the pillar there by the gate, broke the gate, bashed in the hood of the car. Um, and uh, what did I deserve? I deserved destruction. <laughs> I deserved, well, uh, hell is a pretty strong word, but you know, I mean, I, I had sinned, I had disobeyed, I had done what I was not supposed to do, and so I deserved what was coming to me, destruction. And um, I... Uh, <clears throat> went into the living room to hide in the dark, and I sat in the dark. It was about one o'clock in the morning, I think. And I just waited, and I waited, because I knew, I knew that Dad was coming. I knew Pastor Bill was going to be there soon. And so Pastor Bill comes into the dark room, and he walks toward me, and I'm sitting down, and I stand up, because I say, at least I'm gonna take my punishment like a man, right? I'm gonna take my destruction like a man. Um, and he comes to me, and I've, I've shared this story many times, but he, he comes to me and he doesn't say anything. He doesn't say anything at first. He just gives me a hug. Now, I knew what I deserved, and it was not a hug. Okay? And um, in this, I saw, so mercy and grace. Mercy, what do I deserve? I deserve severe punishment. That's what I deserve. And I did not receive punishment. Um, but then the side of grace, what did I receive that I didn't deserve, which was restored relationship, affection, encouragement, forgiveness. I did have to pay for the car and the gate, but <laughs> it was parcelado over a long period of time. Uh, mercy and grace. God does not repay us according to our sin. And he does not give us what we deserve. We're stopping here today. But God isn't finished with us. And he's not finished pouring out his blessings. With David, we, we're not even halfway through the psalm. 
there's a lot of blessing and purpose and joy that's yet to come. And so the question that we ask is, praise the Lord, but why? Isn't this God worthy of our praise? If he really is who he claims to be, if he really is who he has revealed himself to be, isn't it right that in gratefulness and joy we would praise him and worship him? That it would well up naturally from within ourselves? So we need to pause in our busy, packed, frantic lives and meditate on the infinite blessings that God gives so that our hearts will be turned to praise. But there is one thing, one other, one other address I want to make here at the end. For some of you, it could be that the things I'm talking about today have, have no context for you. And maybe all this talk of God and his, his goodness, his blessings, who is Jesus, how does he fit into this mix, it may be that, that for you this is all new and perhaps confusing. So when I talk about receiving forgiveness or receiving something from God, you're like, well, why do I even need that? What, 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 is the, what does this mean? What, what is God to me? What am I to God? And I just want to, to very basically state that God's word, the Bible, describes that every individual that has ever been born with one notable exception, is born into sin. And what is sin? It's imperfection. It's rebellion. It's a rebellion against God, the Creator's standard. And because of sin, we are separated from God. God who is the, the Creator, God who is the source of life, God who is the one who loves, God who is the one who forgives, God who is the sovereign authority over the universe. And our sin has separated us from him and there is nothing that we can do about that. There is no human recourse. And the Bible says that the wages of sin, I just talked about this earlier, what do we deserve because of sin? Is death, destruction, hell. Because we have destroyed perfection. Be, I, I mentioned earlier that there was one notable exception to people who were born, being born into sin. And that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who took on flesh, was born as a human baby. And through him, God revealed himself to the world. As the Son of God, he was one with God and one with the Holy Spirit, and he lived a perfect human life. And he died a human death, an innocent human death, the only innocent human death of all time. And because of his innocence and because of his deity, he rose again and his resurrection defeated sin and death. Because he doesn't have to pay for his own sin, he can offer his, sin, his death as payment for your sin. So when we talk about, maybe you've heard the vocabulary, accepting Christ as your Savior. Maybe you've heard that, maybe you haven't. But what it refers to is, first of all, admitting that you need a Savior. And that means admitting that you're a sinner and admitting that you have fallen short, that you cannot reach God by your own efforts. And we admit that, we say, yes, I am a sinner, I need forgiveness. And then we find that forgiveness in the death and resurrection and person and work of Jesus Christ. We believe that he is who he said he was, that he's the son of God, that he died, he was buried and rose again on the third day to the glory of the Father.
And we can trust him. We can trust him with our lives and with our need for salvation. That's what it means to receive forgiveness, to accept Christ as our Savior, to be restored to relationship with God. And all these blessings that David is listing come as a result of that reunion with God through the work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we know that for many of us, these are truths that we've heard, some of us for all our lives. So for some of us that have heard it so often, Lord, we confess that we can become jaded. We can forget how miraculous you are and how profoundly we need you. Have mercy on us and forgive us for taking your love and your sacrifice so lightly. And Lord, for others that have never encountered you personally, I thank you that you're here today. And I pray that by your spirit, you would touch each heart with the conviction of sin and the conviction of truth and draw these souls to you so that they too would receive forgiveness and enjoy all these blessings of who you are. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.